You are listening to the Regent College Podcast. Hello, I'm Nick Corbin. And I'm Claire Perini. And welcome back to the Regent College Podcast. Today we're talking about uh, the topic of Christology and how particularly how did the early church understand and articulate and practice their understanding of who Jesus was. So we were talking, uh, having this conversation with Dr. Joshua Coots, who's Associate Professor of New Testament at Providence Theological Seminary in in Otterburn, Otterburn, uh, Manitoba. And he's he's a Regent grad, but he's also served on Regent's faculty uh, for a year in 2017 and 2018. He's taught spring and summer school courses and he teaches distance ed courses. And you'll you'll get a sense of this is one of the classes that he's teaching in the fall distance ed for us. Um, and he did his PhD at the University of Edinburgh. And Josh, is, Josh has a wonderful way of um, articulating in a really clear, down-to-earth, um, just... Uh, honest and like he's just he's just clear and easy to understand kind of in the way he understands Christology. Yeah, one of the things Josh said was that the church was concerned first and foremost about devotion to Christ before they were concerned about the articulation of even who he was, even though that was important and would come. And so I I was impacted by that. And then Josh also impacts about what it looked like for the early church to have what maybe many modern evangelicals would call today a personal relationship with Jesus. And so that was really informative and even uh, convicting as well. Yeah. So we hope you enjoy our conversation with Dr. Joshua Coots. Josh Coots, welcome back to the Regent College podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's good to have you back. Um, We're going to be talking about early Christology and and how these kind of practices formed and sort of and then informed believers. But I wonder, could you talk a little bit, sort of start off with what are some of the different approaches and the methods for how we sort of think about investigating early Christology? Yeah, so we're thinking about Christology, early Christology, we're thinking about how the earliest Christians thought about Jesus, who he was. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's no developed Christology as we would think of it, you know, in the earliest Mm -hmm. church, what we have, of course, in the new Testament are pastoral letters, you know, writing letters for pastoral addressing pastoral issues. We have the gospels, but that's not Christology Mm. uh, per se. It's uh, the life of Jesus. Now you could infer something from the fact that they wrote lives of Jesus. They thought this figure is worth uh, knowing something about such that we're going to write, you know, a a biography and crack our own biography about him. Um, but when we're approaching this question of what early Christians thought uh, about Jesus, classically, you know, one of the, the, the easiest entry points, I suppose, would be look at the titles for Christ. So what do mm. what Christians, how do they refer to him? And you'd locate that in kind of contextual considerations. So what would earliest Christians have meant when they called Jesus Messiah mm. or Lord uh, or Son of God? Um, so that's kind of called titular Christology. But you could also look at, uh, and this began like a century ago, looking not just at those sort of titles, which gets more into the ideas of what early Christians thought, but what were Christians doing with respect to Jesus? Mm. Uh, so the fact that uh, early Christians, when they prayed, they prayed in Jesus' name. That tells you something about 
fact, they thought he was a person of some significance, to put mm-hmm. it mildly. <laughs> um, if they're singing hymns to Jesus as to a God, as Pliny tells us in the second century, uh, that practice is not, you know, articulated Christology, but it's a window into what early Christians uh, thought of him uh, by means of what they're they're doing with him. Um, I mean, another example of a practice that is is kind of a, a fun little window into early Christianity. You have we have our earliest manuscripts, like texts of of New Testament documents or other Christian documents, in which they would actually treat Jesus' name uh, in a special way. So. This is called nomina sacra. It means Latin for sacred name, sacred names. And in these early manuscripts, they would treat, uh, say, the word God, theos, or father, uh, with a short form, with maybe like a little line above it or something. So it's visually set off differently in, in mm. the text. And interestingly, they did the same thing with references to Jesus. So, mm. you know, Jesus, Christ, Lord, terms like that for Jesus, they treat in the same kind of special way visually as they would God. Mm. And that it just gives a little window into obviously they thought he was in some way, you know, on par with or in association with God, such that we're going to actually write his like titles or designations in our manuscripts mm. in the same way we do, we do with mm. God. Interesting. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Right. Well, even the fact that they called Jesus Christ, you were saying, you know, so that we're calling, they're talking about Lord, you're talking about Lord or um, Messiah or even Christ. Is that, like that's that's another that's just another designation as well, and then that so that like even what we understand like the word Christ to mean tells mm-hmm. us what they thought, who they thought Jesus was as well, right? So, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So there's a whole yeah. I mean, those terms come with a whole host of meaning yeah. already, of mm-hmm. course, uh, coming from Israel scriptures, mm-hmm. uh, etc. But they're also adapted in light of their experience of Jesus, who's a real. Right person mm. is not just this generic category it takes a particular form yes reference yeah. to jesus yeah 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 so i mean with the specifically with the changing of how they would even write the name is that like contextual like would they do that for other significant names and i also with that like i'm thinking even of the hebrew bible how they wrote yahweh mm-hmm. and how they would not my understanding is they wouldn't spell out all the all the letters or they they wrote it in a significant way that distinguished this is Yahweh, this is special. Is that like, is that carrying over from the Hebrew Bible or is that like contextual from that time even? Yeah, that's a great question. It's, it seems to be very similar kind of thing. Um, the difference is in the Hebrew tradition, of course, the, you're replacing Yahweh with say four asterisks or four dots or mm-hmm. replacing the, you know, the vowels with vowels from Adonai uh, mm. were, were sort of mnemonic devices to the reader to not actually pronounce the word Yahweh. So you wouldn't actually right. slip mm-hmm. up and speak the name at all. You'd say mm-hmm. Adonai or you'd say just the name <clears throat> instead. <clears throat> By contrast, um, early Christian manuscript seems to be a purely visual phenomenon. So it's just like the reader would notice, oh, this, this term is different, but they wouldn't speak anything differently. So you'd have mm-hmm. a short form for Jesus, but you'd still say, you'd speak Jesus, you know, the, the word Jesus out loud. Right. Um, so it's just, it seems like almost more of a private devotional expression mm. for early Christian scribes and those who would be reading these texts, which wouldn't be everybody, right? Like most early Christians were illiterate. Mm. Um, but it's, yeah, again, it's just a window into one of many little windows we have into how early Christians thought about yeah. uh, Jesus that's thinking outside the box of just look, just looking at the titles, mm-hmm. right? So mm-hmm. what Christians actually practiced, <clears throat> what they did with their manuscripts, um, the fact that they're willing to, you know, be martyred 
yeah. further allegiance to Jesus, those sorts of actions you could also look at. Yeah. Um, or even the narratives, you know, I mentioned the gospels earlier, mm-hmm. uh, the book of Acts, the ways in which narratives are constructed in, in the new Testament has a kind of baked in Christology to it. That's not mm-hmm. articulated Christology, but maybe a, a development of a character of Jesus mm. or things that are revealed within the course of a narrative that you can't just reduce to the, the, the Christological punchline as it were. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, as an example, yeah. here, John four, uh, you have this conversation with a Samaritan woman, right? And she, she knows Jesus is a Jewish man at the start of the conversation, but as they have a conversation, he offers her water. He says, well, uh, surely you must be greater than our father, Jacob. Uh, and then a little, little, little bit later on, are you a prophet? Have you able to get a window into my past? Mm. And, and then when Jesus says something else, she says, well, when Messiah comes, he'll explain everything to us. And then Jesus says, I am he. Mm. So there's a sort of like levels of increased recognition that the woman's right. going through, through mm. the course of that conversation. And if you just flattened that conversation down to, well, the main takeaway here is that Jesus is the Messiah or, or maybe even more Jesus is I am. Mm. There's lots of things we're learning about Jesus in the conversation. The, the fact that he's greater than Jacob, that he offers living water, the fact that he's a particular, particular kind of Messiah, the fact that as a prophet, he has window you know, insight into her, her past. These are all important parts that make up mm. our understanding of the punchline at the end. It's kind of irreducible. Right. And that you're not going to get that if you're just looking at titles. Right. right? So these are all different ways that scholars will come at the question of what early Christians thought about mm. Jesus. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's helpful. And so then in terms of sort of core practices in the early church, so we're, so, we're talking kind of first, second, third century, um, what, what are some of those core practices that kind of shape their devotion to Jesus? Yeah, so here we want to have in mind um, things like uh, so the earliest Christians uh, probably invoked, when they gathered together for worship, probably invoked Jesus saying, come Lord Jesus. The earliest generations of, of Christians who are speaking Aramaic, so this is even before it goes goes global, as it were, they're saying, come Lord. Uh, the Aramaic for which is Maranatha. And obviously this was early enough and widespread enough of a practice that Paul, in the, the end of 1 Corinthians, in chapter 16, he, he quotes that. <clears throat> he says, Maranatha, at the end of his letter, in Aramaic, and he doesn't even bother to translate into Greek, because it's you know, it's, it's known enough, he assumes his Greek readers of First Corinthians and Corinth would know what this is. So they are invoking, they're evoking Jesus to come, uh, the Lord, Jesus, the Lord, uh, to come to join them in their worship, or maybe eschatologically, we're expecting him to come again. Mm. Uh, we're also thinking of things like the confession, Jesus is Lord, um, doxology, that features Jesus, some of which are preserved in the letters of the New Testament. Uh, hymns sung to Jesus, you got, you know, hints of the sorts of things Christians did in hymns mm-hmm. in, say, Revelation. There's lots of hymns in Revelation. Paul might have either composed or quoted early Christian hymns in some of his letters. Um, you know, Philippians 2, for instance. Mm-hmm. Um, the practice of uh, the Eucharist, where you're assuming the presence of Christ as a host and as present at the meal. And this is profound participation with Jesus, uh, praying in Jesus name, being baptized into uh, Jesus name. These are a kind of a, a group mm. of things that early Christians did. They're all orientated towards Jesus. Yeah. They all 
reflect a kind of response to Jesus. They've all sort of adapt. In some ways, many of them are adaptations of Jewish practices that mm-hmm. reflect the huge impact uh, of Jesus. And so also would have um, oriented Christians uh, to him. Mm-hmm. So uh, I've heard you talk to Josh about these three different categories within the early church practices that formed them. And the three are uh, docs of formation, Christo formation, and ecclesio formation. And I know these, there's a lot to unpack here, but I wonder if you could just give us maybe a snapshot into what these are and then how they, they impacted the church. Yeah, well... <laughs> You could do a whole lecture on this because you have. Yeah. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's a really good question. I, I maybe you know, before I dive into that, there's mm-hmm. a, maybe just to back up a moment, and say, point out the the obvious that it's a, it's just a, a worthwhile um, point that Christians their first responses was not the articulation of theology, but yeah. was devotion. Like the yeah. first things that Christians do mm-hmm. is pray in Jesus' name or or worship him with a hymn or um, baptize into his name, which to me is like really good news you know, for yeah. those of us that are less uh, inclined to higher academic thinking, rational mm-hmm. thought. That's really good news for those with intellectual disability, for example, to sort mm-hmm. of the, the, the earliest response is we don't know exactly how all this fits together, how Jesus and the father totally. are related, but we know where to worship him, to give him our full allegiance yeah. with our lives. Mm-hmm. And, um, so there's that, the, the historical point, the devotion comes yeah. first and kind of theological articulation uh, mm-hmm. comes a bit later in terms mm-hmm. of historic historical timeline. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I sort of have meant in the past by docs of formation is the ways in which these practices oriented Christians to ultimate realities. Uh, so when you pray the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done you are orienting yourself to an ultimate reality that is both a kind of got a another like a heavenly dimension I suppose you could say and an eschatological dimension that God's future world invades the present that God's mm. heavenly kingdom invades our, our earthly kingdom you're oriented towards those sorts of, those sorts of realities mm. and many New Testament texts uh, give hints into the fact that Christians thought of their worship as um, a, an entrance into that, uh, and my participation in that realm mm-hmm. or in that future. And when you evoke Christ to come, our Lord come, you're inviting that future into the present. When you, when you enter into worship, you are hymning with the angels. That's the mm-hmm. significance of revelation four and five, mm-hmm. right? Where you have the whole creation erupting in worship. Mm-hmm. And one of the kind of pastoral implications of that is that every time we worship, when we gather as worship, we're joining in with something that's going on already. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's unseen, but it's an ultimate reality that we're mm-hmm. orientated mm-hmm. towards. Um, crystal formation, uh, I just, just my little, little terms for uh, the formational impact of these early Christian right. practices, but that would be the ways in which these practices encourage Christians to identify with uh, Christ. So, you're baptized in Jesus' name, uh, and you go into the water and you come out of the water. These are, as Paul makes clear in Romans, you're you're identifying with him in his death and in his resurrection. Mm. Uh, when um, early Christians would eat the Lord's Supper, 
likewise, there's a sense in which they, when they take the body that's broken for them, are, are reminding themselves, reminding each other, we want to put to death everything that was nailed to Christ on the cross. Mm-hmm. And we're raised to the new life that is the, the prototype of which is, is Christ, who's now present with us, the future invading uh, right now. Mm. Um, and early Christians, when they, when they prayed, um, all sorts of ways in which they're inhabiting uh, Christ. Mm. So hence in the New Testament, the early Christians, when they prayed, were praying at set times of the day, which would be an adaptation from the Jewish tradition. Mm-hmm. Um, but as early as the second century and maybe maybe earlier, there's sort of uh, justifications given for this that are orientated towards Christ. So Christians were invited to pray, say, at the, the hours of the day when Christ is crucified. So he's crucified, when the sky goes dark, when he dies, uh, they're invited to pray first thing in the morning in orientation to the resurrection. They pray facing the rising sun in the east, mm-hmm. anticipating the resurrection. They pray standing with arms outstretched in a cr- cross-shaped pattern. Mm-hmm. So you have this in like Tertullian and Cyprian talk about this sort of thing. So their whole prayer life, they are like taking on the shape of, of Christ, being orientated towards him. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And one of the implications of all of all of this, all the, many of these practices, is they're being formed and bound together as the ecclesia. So ecclesia mm-hmm. formation is the third one you asked about there, Nick. But mm-hmm. it, it brings them together as communities. Um, mm-hmm. When you when you pray Maranatha, which is Our Lord come, you can't pray Our Lord come by yourself. Oh, right. yeah. <laughs> yeah. um, when you're baptized, this is the initiatory right into the community. Right, yeah. you're baptized into Christ uh, as part of His body. Um, and even prayer, you know, if you're all praying at the same times of the day, even if you're different places, mm-hmm. um, there's a kind of a corporate identity that's being formed there. Mm-hmm. Right. So in, mm-hmm. in many of these ways, there's uh, Christians are being formed by by these practices. Yeah. Yeah. If, and if we think about um, kind of there's some some elements of, of that, are, that, that, that worship and devotion are translating into our, obviously into our ecclesia, into our gatherings of the body of Christ now still. And then, mm. but the other big one is preaching, which we haven't talked about, um, that we, that's often part of our, a big part of mm. our formation, you know, as, as, as believers in our kind of gather, our gathered worship, either on Sundays or in other situations, this kind of teaching, preaching kind of moment. Where, where was, where does that fit in? Does that fit in in the early church there? Does it come later? How does that evolve maybe as well? Or, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. Well, I guess it depends what we mean by preaching. Right. Um, uh, if you're thinking of the modern homiletical event, uh, yeah. maybe not that quite that. Not quite that. <laughs> in the earliest church. Yeah. Um, but I mean, preach the term proclamation. You know, comes from mm. the charisma, the, the proclamation of good news, which is the very beginning mm-hmm. of the church. Right? The proclamation, the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus is preaching in that sense in Mark's gospel. Um, the proclamation that God has raised Jesus to life and and seated him at the right hand, and now everything has changed. That's at the very origins of Christianity. Um, but if we're thinking of the gathered community in the context of corporate worship, yeah. um, perhaps the first document to ever be written that is now in our New Testament is First Thessalonians. And in chapter 5, Paul says, assumes that they're going to read his letter in their corporate worship setting. Yeah. So you have the, that's elsewhere, too, in the New Testament, this assumption that 
these documents are going to be read in the context of worship. Also hints that the Jewish scriptures would be read in worship. Mm-hmm. And that's that's taking over from probably synagogue practice. Um, and within the Jewish scriptures, there's maybe hints that particular passages would have regularly been read mm-hmm. in, in Christian circles. So, you know, Psalm 2 and Psalm 110 pop up mm-hmm. all over the place in the New Testament, mm-hmm. for example. They're quoted or alluded to by authors who didn't necessarily know about each other. Um, one intriguing suggestion for that is that these psalms were regularly read or prayed in corporate worship, and that's why they pop up all over the place in yeah. the New Testament. Mm-hmm. So you have Scripture being read. And um, when Paul sends his letters, he maybe uh, sends them with you know letter carriers who would be authorized interpreters of the letter. So if there's mm-hmm. questions about you know, the letter to the Romans in the house churches there in Rome. Mm-hmm. Um, there's the, the letter carrier there is there to maybe help answer questions, to expound, to explain. Mm. Paul in his, you know, discussions with Timothy, you know, talks about teaching scripture. Uh, so you have references to teaching and expounding scripture already in the earliest texts. And that becomes a little bit clearer in the second century. Um mm. The Justin Martyr, for example, gives us a bit of a window into what early Christians did. He mentioned sort of reading uh, from the scriptures and reading, uh, having a reading from a gospel. And then the president of the meeting, he, he says, you know, the, the leader of the meeting will give an explanation or give a little bit mm-hmm. of, a, of a teaching. Um, but our, our first um, sort of recognizable sermon that, that we might think of as the kind of homiletical Mm. activity might not be until the second century, uh, depending Mm -hmm. on what you do with with Hebrews, um, some homiletical features of Hebrews. But Melito, for example, Melito Sardis is a pastor in Asia Minor uh, whose his his work on the Passover is is an early Christian homily. To get a window there into earlier Christian uh, rhetorical explanation of a Mm -hmm. theme that's traced through the whole of of Scripture. Mm. Um, So, yeah, Yes and no, I suppose right. is a lot the yeah, yeah. short answer to your question. Right. Yeah. I mean, would it be safe to say that not, I, mean, I don't know about safe to say, but maybe an articulation would be that preachers in some sense or teachers are authorized interpreters, uh, meaning meaning they like have the authority or understanding, I guess you could say, to be able to interpret the passage from what it's saying to that given context. I mean, obviously in the early church, it looked a little bit different because it was coming directly from Paul directly to the, to this church in Philippi or or wherever. So, but with little variation, I guess, for, for today now though. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, the early Christian idea of the charisma has this sort of presentness to it, Mm. that this is the word of the Lord for this community right now right that's a little bit different than just explaining you know what paul meant by by the letter mm-hmm. um, right. so i wouldn't necessarily mm. refer to like a letter carrier who explains paul's letter as a preacher a proclaimer uh-huh. um but that's that is sort of a factor in in the larger picture that right it contributes to what we now recognize yeah. as kind of a preaching activity yeah. mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. no that's really helpful yeah that's really helpful yeah, and I guess there is a recognition that it does that it does need some interpretation or some understanding at some like it, it doesn't it it can stand on its own and it is direct, but mm. there is someone who can help you kind of understand it is is helpful. But anyway, we're we're trying to kind mm. of extrapolate it out, but yeah. I yeah. get this doesn't totally doesn't totally translate, but bits of it, yeah, parts I mean, of it does. 
And the other piece that maybe I haven't mentioned here is our earliest window into what maybe happened in early Christian worship is in First Corinthians, mm. um, where Paul makes reference to those who have a word of prophecy. Yes, right. And that has mm-hmm. that kind of a presentness to it, right? That mm-hmm. here's, and that comes out of the Old Testament tradition of thus says the Lord. Here's the word of the Lord for this community right, uh, right now. So that's maybe the other, other piece there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Did in terms of um, kind of the 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 church's understanding of Jesus' return, you're saying so even with Maranatha, there is it's like there's a coming of of Christ into our worship, but there's also the eschatological coming of Christ. What? How did they? How did the early church sort of understand that? Did they think that Christ was coming back within their lifetime? Then how did that shift over time? When you know maybe as the years went on <laughs> i don't know how did they how did they understand the the return of christ yeah so it seems like the uh, i mean jesus says some things in the gospels that you could hear you can imagine his first year is interpreting as he's going to return again mm. very soon you know like matthew 16 i think it is for example where jesus says that many of you are standing here who will not see death before you see or before they see the you know the son of man coming in his kingdom mm-hmm. um Paul certainly thought in his early letters that he would be alive still when Jesus returned. Yeah. First yeah. Thessalonians four, when he's trying to comfort the believers uh, that some of their loved ones have already died, and saying, you know, those who have died are they're actually going to be the first ones to see Christ. They're they're going to be raised. They're going to be you know, meet him in the air, and then those of us who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So Paul, uh, you know, identifies himself with the with the latter group, those mm. who are who are still going to be alive when Jesus comes back. He probably migrates in in that view as life moves on, and he <laughs> gets imprisoned multiple times and realizes uh, <laughs> that uh, he's, he's been poured out like water. I've fought the good fight. I've you know kept mm. the faith, etc. Um, so as that generation dies off, you have. That might have been an impetus for writing some of the Gospels. You know, the eyewitnesses are dying off. We should write this stuff down or we're going to have that memory lost. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's maybe a, a brief window there where there's a, an opportunity for some skepticism that that some New Testament letters are maybe responses to. So Second Peter chapter 3, where the author there says, you know, there are those scoffers who say, where's the promise of his coming? Mm-hmm. Uh, everything continues as it did from the beginning mm. of the days of creation. So it seems to be a response there to maybe a, a scoffing tone that, well, you guys thought that Jesus was coming back really soon. Yeah. He obviously hasn't. So mm. that calls into question the whole thing. So Peter mm-hmm. there is responding to that. But there's actually not a lot of, of wit, uh, evidence of, of deep concern or kind of a existential panic or crisis on the part of uh, the early church. When Jesus doesn't come back, they have to adapt um and uh so this may be a brief season that fueled some skepticism towards the end mm. of the first century early second mm. century but there's not that really kind of worry in the second yeah. century texts about that issue mm. um, and when you say they have to adapt do you mean they adapted in their thinking or this also shifted some of their practices of that they would they would do i guess uh, i mean like it adapts the expectation of Mm-hmm. Um, if the first Christians thought it would happen definitely within their lifetime and then they start dying off, you have to make mm-hmm. some kind of adaptation. Yeah, right. It's not that Jesus' you know, return isn't imminent. That's got all over the New Testament. 
but it's imminent in a de- in a deeper sense that mm. Christ is always coming. He's on the move, and he's mm. this is on the other side of reality, the other side of the air that we breathe, and at any moment he may appear. Right. So that has been a reality that has characterized Christian eschatology through the centuries. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and that makes sense of uh, a lot of the admonitions in Scripture yeah. to be ready. I'm going to come like yeah. a thief. You know, be prepared. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's it's uh, it's yeah. not problematized by the fact that he didn't come within five years. Right. <laughs> yeah. 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 That's helpful. Yeah. yeah. Were there other sim? I mean, tensions. I mean, I guess you articulated this wasn't as much of a tension, but were there other tensions about Christ within the early church that caused conflict or, um, yeah, it caused conflict? And, and then how maybe were these resolved? Were they resolved? Mm-hmm. You know, what, one of the interesting things about, say, Paul's letters, which are the earliest t- Christian texts that we have, is, I mean, he's, he's addressing lots of problems, right? lots of uh, issues, but nowhere is he seem to be addressing Christological problems, like that there's mm-hmm. other Christians or other, even the super apostles or those that he's debating with who have different views about who Jesus is. That just doesn't come up mm. in letters. Um, there's lots of debate about what to do with the Torah and whether you should be circumcised and um, ethical issues and uh, how you handle um pagans coming into the folds of the faith and all food sacrifice to idols and that kind of thing, but not Christology Hmm. proper, not Christology per se, which may be an indication that there was kind of widespread uh, agreement, we say, amongst (laughs) early Christians. There wasn't a debate on this particular issue. They were all worshiping him as Lord and praying in his name, etc. And maybe part of that is because they hadn't like articulated a theology that you could react against. They're just... They're uh, they're living out allegiance to him. Yeah, yeah. Um, having said that, uh, certainly you have debates about who Jesus is that emerge uh, within the, the first century, um, and maybe some of the roots of this would be. I mean, Christ is is such a, a seismic has such a seismic impact. Mm-hmm. Um, he transforms the landscape within the Jewish tradition, right? Of, of how you interpret scripture, about what you do with festivals and Torah observance and your whole sense of your religious identity, your fundamental convictions about who God is. Um, so there's tension between early Christians and their Jewish compatriots or Jewish co-religionists from the very earliest days. And maybe some of the fruit of that comes in the second century where you have uh, hints and references to group like the Ebionites. It seems to be a quite a, a Jewish group that seems to have had, although we really know very little about what they thought, but a quite a low Christology, like a, a lower view of Jesus. That maybe he was just a, a really righteous man who God adopted as his son, either at his resurrection or maybe when he was baptized. And that's the whole significance of the um, the, the mm-hmm. voice from heaven at the baptism. And then he takes on a particular status after that. Mm-hmm. Uh, that maybe emerges from a Jewish context. On the other side of, of the spectrum, you have uh, kind of a pantheistic Greco-Roman uh, landscape where there's all sorts of views of God and gods. And when those people start coming into, into the church. You have some of their philosophical assumptions about the divine that come into. Mm. And, and mm. so you have early Christians 
uh, maybe you know, su- suggesting that Jesus really didn't even become human because, you know, Plato tells us that uh, human flesh and embodiment and physicality are all sub-divine things. So he mm-hmm. couldn't possibly become human. Uh, he just appeared to be human. Mm-hmm. So you have what's called docetism, uh, the, the idea that Jesus just appeared to be human, but he's really fully belongs to the divine realm. Mm-hmm. And there's maybe hints of that in First in John, where John in his letter is responding to those who have views of Jesus that are quasi-docetic. And he says, you know, the true spirit or the spirit of truth will always confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. Mm. So mm. maybe there's a, a reaction there against those who are saying he didn't come in the flesh. And that that's going to um, become a, a bigger issue in the second century where you have Marcion, for example, who has a kind of a docetic mm-hmm. Christology, um, the Gnostics who have a kind mm-hmm. of a similar view of, of Jesus. And they are they're opposed by thinkers like Irenaeus and, and Tertullian who go back to to the texts and, mm. and say that's actually that's foreign to yeah. the Jesus that we've received in the tradition. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. We hope you've been enjoying this wonderful conversation. But Claire wanted to take a few seconds just to share some ways you could get involved more in the Regent College podcast. Totally. We at Regent, we love people being a part of the things that we're doing. And so there's a couple of different ways you can do that. If you've enjoyed this conversation or any of our other conversations, let someone know, share it with them, share it with a family member, with a friend, with someone who you think would appreciate this and would love to hear it. That's the first way. Mm-hmm. Second way, you could you could give us a rating or write a little uh, comment on one of the, on wherever you listen to your podcast. That would be another great way. And then the final way that you could uh, participate with us is if you've enjoyed the podcast and you'd like to give a donation to Regent College, then we would warmly receive that. You can do that by heading to rgnt.net forward slash give. And, you know, in the comment box, let them know that we sent you. Right, Nick? That's right. We do love hearing when people have appreciated the podcast. And so let you can let Nick know by sending an email to podcast at regent-college.edu. When Nick and I are having these conversations, it's sometimes hard for us to realise that actually people listen to these. And so when we get emails or we get a little note in the comment box on the donation page of our website, it just reminds us that people are actually listening and we love that. So please let us know that you're listening. Let us know if there are things that different profs that you'd like to hear from. We'd love to hear from you. So thanks for listening. And we hope you enjoy the rest of the conversation. Your point about Paul and like other witnesses of Jesus not focusing as much on, you know, the debate between who he was, like even even in later centuries, like whether he was fully God, fully man, like those, like it just is really interesting to me. I I hadn't necessarily thought about that because those issues become at the forefront of the church to the point where uh like violence breaks out in the church and just like two, three centuries later, uh, there's significant debate about who actually Jesus is, who he was, who he, who he claims to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, that's, that's very interesting to me that like in the first century, that wasn't an issue. I don't, I just, my, my thoughts, like I want to make different assumptions, but obviously I know that that's probably not right, but just like maybe they, cause they were a smaller group, it it didn't cause as much conflict. There was more un- unity in it. Or my other thought is like, well, it's going into different cultures now, um, different uh, religions, Greco-Roman, like different thoughts, like 
trying to take root in there. So just trying to articulate it and understand who Jesus is, like why, why did it, you know, all these questions get raised about Christ in the later centuries to follow when it wasn't necessarily an issue in the first century. Mm. Do you, Mm -hmm. uh, do you have any thoughts on, on that? Well, maybe to clarify what I, what I said earlier, it's not that there wasn't debate about or or over Jesus in early, Mm. uh, in the first century. He's a, Jesus is a pretty big deal, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) He's a pretty big deal breaker or deal maker. So he's, he's a huge factor in distinguishing Christians from what would become Jews on the one hand, and Mm. also Christians from what would become, you know, pagans, non-Christian Gentiles on the other, but within, and this is what you're asking about, Nick, within Christian communities, there doesn't seem to be a lot of debate about uh, who he is. And that might partly be, because there was, it was quite costly for them, mm. for all of them. Um, they were losing mm. a lot to identify with, with Jesus. Um, that wasn't welcomed by their, their pagan co-religionists because this was regarded as a threat. If you're not worshiping the emperor and Artemis and you live in Ephesus, well, then that's going to be bad news for Ephesus. So mm. you're making things more difficult for us here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, get on board and, and toe the line. So they're losing you know, business opportunities or collegial relationships with, with pagans. And they're also, you know, losing Mm. their position in synagogues or whatever, if they, if they're Jewish. So it's costly and that cost would really galvanize a relationship with each other. Wow. Yeah. 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 Um, That's a good point. Yeah. And, but part of the fact there's no debate might be, as I mentioned earlier, there isn't a kind of a clear crystallized Christology Mm. and they're to, to, to resist or to, to, mm-hmm. to push back against. Right. Um, and the, the debates that emerge in the third and fourth centuries are as you have attempts to articulate and make sense of Jesus in light of everything that we know, you know, whether it's scripture and our philosophical ideas and whatnot, then you have problems, you have challenges because mm. um, it's, Although it's very simple at one level, it's also quite complicated. How do you put all these moving parts together? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You've got Christianity coming out of the Jewish tradition in which you have exclusive allegiance to one God. Right? So the Shema, the heart of Jewish fidelity to God, there's one one Lord. We confess him, hero mm-hmm. Israel, the Lord our God is one. And um, you have Christians who can't jettison that. They can't set that aside. They don't feel at liberty to set aside the Jewish scriptures, mm-hmm. but you've got Jesus. What do you do with him? This, this man who had this huge impact, who said and did things that uh, identify him with a number of eschatological expectations from the Jewish scriptures, who acted in ways that were kind of like stuff that only God does. And on top of that, he's raised from the dead. So God's clearly given his sign of approval to Jesus. He's vindicated him. He's, he's given him victory over death etc so how do you put that together with Mm, this exclusive allegiance to jesus yeah and a historical fascinating question is how is it that early jewish followers of jesus uh Mm. ended up worshiping him at all Mm. yeah yeah and from the earliest days as we as we've talked about Mm -hmm. so there's like a collision of what seem to be competing ideas that they just put together in worship and then mm-hmm. it's the later generations that have to work out how did these things actually go together? Like they just, it's like an explosion went off in, mm-hmm. in the first century and Christians respond in fidelity to it. Mm-hmm. 
But then as people start to think it through, they're like, wow, how did these things go together? There's one God, but you've also got Jesus and he's in relationship with the father and, Mm -hmm. you know, et cetera, et cetera. So as the attempts to articulate that start to, you know, the pens go to the, to the papyrus as it were, Mm -hmm. then there's debate, right? Yeah. Yeah. And that's really helpful. And there's, there's so much of that then is we see in some of that debate sort of in the second and third centuries, the development of, of creeds and things like that over time in terms of because mm-hmm. they're wrestling with this, you've got this, but then there's this, but you say, you know, they're, they're trying to sort of do that and that's when you sort of, you, you have these creeds developed. Can you talk a little bit about them and how do they, did they sort of shift how early Christians understood scripture or vice versa? How did they, how did the, how did they relate scripture and the creeds and Christians understanding and of both of those things? Right. So just a, a nice, simple, just nice, simple again, to be yep. a short answer here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a huge issue, right? I mean, and we have like totally separate disciplines, like biblical studies and theology, yeah. <laughs> partly coming out of how do those things go together historically. Mm-hmm. Um, and part of it's a language issue. You know, some people looking in on the conversation might be oh, just semantics, right? But yeah. language can reflect sort of whole ways of thinking or conceptualizing right. uh, a reality. Uh, what I've found helpful in thinking about how we go from the, say, the New Testament to, to the creeds, I think it was Reverend Childs who introduced the language of pressure. There's a kind of a pressure that's exerted by biblical texts that requires a kind of articulation that doesn't come until later. Uh, and I sort of spoke to that earlier, but um, if you have, as I mentioned, you know, kind of exclusive monotheism and yet yeah, Jesus is also Lord. And you have that expressed, say, in, in Philippians 2, right? The, the hymnic um, poem or whatever we call that there, which ends with this climactic, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the mm-hmm. glory of God the Father. And Paul there is alluding to Isaiah uh, 45, mm-hmm. which is an extremely exclusive passage that, you know, every knee bows to God alone. Mm-hmm. He's the only God. It's like, there's no other contenders for this. And Paul applies that language to mm-hmm. Jesus. Mm-hmm. And then you would give, you know, every knee, every tongue confess that he is Lord to the glory of God, the father. So it's like nested within. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. It sounds like appropriate Jewish thinking, but Jesus is kind of in the middle of it. That collision, not just of the reference to Jesus as Lord, but the fact that Paul evokes it like an exclusive text, Isaiah 45, it's exclusively devoted to God alone, generates a pressure that uh, you need a way to sort of articulate. Mm. And that pressure, um, another way of thinking about that, uh, Kevin Rowe has written on this a little bit, uh, see Kevin Rowe, uh, you might think of it as another analogy would be, it's like early Christians are just, they just start speaking the language and it, it's later on that, that someone writes the grammar for it. So here's like right. the, grammatic, the, the, yeah. the grammatical textbook that makes sense of the language, the, the way they were using their nouns and verbs. Right. And here's actually how that makes sense. Yeah. Well, that's, that's what you get in the creed. It's kind of like the, the grammar art, the mm. articulation of the grammar that was being used earlier. Uh, I, I find that helpful. Yeah, that is helpful. Um, and, and you, that's sort of going one direction. How do we get from, from New Testament uh, to creeds? But I think you're asking actually about the reverse of that, Claire. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. How do the creeds shape yeah. our reading of, of Scripture? Mm-hmm. Um, so if I can come at it this way, Irenaeus, when he's going to, uh, to battle with, say, the Gnostics in the second century, 
and they're doing all sorts of uh, exegetical shenanigans, shall we say, uh, with, with <laughs> biblical texts. <laughs> and he responds to them um, by going back to the text of scripture and saying, well, you can't do that with this text. Here's what it says in context. And when you put that in, in relation to this and the significance of who Jesus is in relation to that, you get this portrait that emerges. And he refers to it as a, using the metaphor, it's like a mosaic with the face of a king. And the king who's displayed in the whole of the canon of scripture is, is Christ. And you actually mm. need that image to help make sense of the bits or the parts, because you can take the parts and sort of mix them around and mm -hmm. come out with an image of a looks like a fox or something. And that's what the Gnostics have, have done. They're moving the parts around and making something that's quite foreign to the, 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 the native pressures of the texts uh, when you put them together. And what he's trying to do there is to say that what the church has always affirmed, what we received from the apostles that was handed down, he's making an appeal to tradition and apostolic authority, is this portrait of a king. Mm. Um, that's it's native to it's it's um, it is emerging naturally from these texts. Uh, but conversely, you need the sort of mosaic of a king to make sense of the bits when you go back because scriptures are complicated, mm -hmm. and if you just do whatever you want with them. You get all sorts of crazy things that come out of them, which is what the Gnostics were experimenting with. Mm -hmm. That's kind of in the in-between between, say, New Testament texts and the later creeds, Irenaeus, what he's doing. Mm -hmm. that. He's he's kind of a, an in-between figure that I think helpfully articulates the role that the creeds have gone on to play for Christians. Yeah. Here is uh, kind of the, the narrative arc of, of God's involvement with uh his people through history mm. and you the, the, the creeds have i'm thinking here of the apostles and the the nicene creed they kind of have a narrative arc of god the creator and then ending with with the church and the last things at the end so there's a kind of a a, a timeline of the, the high points the, the key points and even there you have hints of that sort of a narrative arc earlier that, that mm -hmm. predate the creeds you think of first corinthians 15 where paul says, I'm, I'm passing on to you what I received, that Christ was you know, died, was buried, was raised the third day. There's a very early kind of creedal formulation that's going to find mm -hmm. its way into the apostles' mm -hmm. Nicene creeds later. Mm -hmm. um, so the material in the creeds, you know, predates, uh, predates the creeds. But conversely, it also acts mm -hmm. as a guidepost, yeah. uh, a guidepost for our correct handling right. of the whole of Scripture, that whatever mm -hmm. we do yeah. with the individual parts, it's going to cohere with this big map, this, this large portrait. Mm -hmm. And yeah. that's how the creeds have functioned yeah. for the church historically. Yeah. 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 That's really helpful. Yeah. And I mean, with the formation of these creeds and then even the articulation of Christ and, and who he was, it's really impacted the church in, in different ways. But I wonder how, how the early church, like early Christology specifically, would have impacted the early church's view of Christ, but then also like what it meant to follow Christ. I don't think you can overstate the impact of <laughs> for, mm -hmm. um, for early Christians. Um, the, the confession that Christ is Lord, uh, which is maybe the most fundamental or kind of foundational early Christian confession is a total exclusive claim. Mm -hmm. that had um, political implications. You know, Christ is Lord and others aren't, like Caesar or whoever else. Mm -hmm. um, but what you get in Christ is also, of course, the picture 
of a God who is uh, crucified, a, a God who gives his life for the life of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, that was a quite a radically different vision of deity than you got, for instance, the Greco-Roman world, where the mm-hmm. Uh, the the pantheon, whether it's Greek or Roman, they're not characterized by any kind of ethics or or, or morality. It's just kind of raw power or, or strength. But in Christ, you have a a window into a God who loves deeply, loves the world. That can't but have implications for how you live. If God does yeah. this for me, and that's what He's willing to do for me, what are the implications of that for how I treat my brother or my neighbor? Mm. And that's exactly the move Paul is making in Philippians two, right? Mm. Each of you should not think of yourselves more highly than you ought. You know, um, and he goes on to quote or, or compose this beautiful hymn about Christ. Mm-hmm. Christ, being in the very form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being obedient to death. Mm-hmm. But he's using that um, description of Christ actually for pastoral aims mm-hmm. in Philippians. But if this is the God you worship, that has implications for how you speak to or talk about each other, how you think about yourself with regard to each other. And, you know, Yodi and Syntyche are sort of sitting, listening to this read in Philippi. And there's tensions mm-hmm. there and the way they're... So he, he's he's got uh, pastoral implications constantly in mind. Again, this isn't like articulated Christology. These are pastoral letters. Mm-hmm. And Christology always should be moving in the direction of discipleship and lived practice. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you've got this kind of Exclusive allegiance to one Lord, that's political implications. There's ethical implications. There's, I mean, the fact that you have in Christ a God who's who's conquered death and dignified uh, humanity by coming among us as one of us. Mm -hmm. The word becomes flesh. Uh, Christ has died. He really dies and he's really bodily raised. That, of course, led to all the ways in which Christians cared for each other, cared for the bodies, uh, were willing to die because they didn't fear death. So martyrdom, those sorts of things. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. So this isn't just a a kind of, and even after the creeds, it should never be or should not become for Christians just mere settled doctrine, you know, just like a point that we all agree, we confess. Um, If this is the God we worship, that has implications for what sort of people we are to be. Yeah. Like you you become yeah. like what you worship. Mm-hmm. So uh, if we worship this kind of a God, we should be this kind of a people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Um, just kind of as we're sort of f- kind of wrapping up here and just kind of thinking about the, the church, the, the way we sometimes understand sort of needing to have a personal relationship with Christ and our, and the, so, and you, you sort of said that it's like, if this is who the God is, then this, if, if this is who God is, then this is who I need to be, but also this is the people we kind of need to be. So just mm. understanding how would the, how would the church have understood the sort of, I've got a sort of the personal relationship with Christ and, I wonder as well that sort of the, the persecution piece and the even the martyrdom piece that then comes like that that real living into the the fact that Christ mm. sacrificed himself and those kinds of things. Can we how how would the early church have understood that the sort of the personal relationship with Christ? Would they have said that? How would they have articulated that? Yeah. Well, um, maybe just to pick up the, the martyrdom persecution. Mm-hmm. Part of it first, there, Claire, just because I probably forgot forget it if I don't. Let's um, go, yeah. <laughs> one of the things about early martyrdom accounts that we have is there's this concerted um, effort to think about and to present martyrs um, 
in ways that are analogous to Christ. So they are going the same path that he went. Um, Ignatius, who's one of our first martyrs, he, he writes uh, a letter to the Romans, the church in Rome, when he's on the way to Rome to be martyred. Uh, he's moving all the way from Antioch to Rome. So he's moving from the east to the west. And in his letter to the Romans, he he says, I'm 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 paraphrasing here, but he's like, I, it's as if I'm setting in the west that I might uh, and the implication is that it may sort of rise uh, mm. with, with, with the new with a new dawn. So he, he sees his move from Antioch to Rome, the actual physical geographical move from east to west as a kind of a setting of his life, as if he's like dying with Jesus. Mm. Wow. Um, and he wants to be like like bread that is food for the lions because he's fully identifying with Jesus, who also died and his his body becomes bread for for us. This mm. really interesting identification there, but mm-hmm. in the hope of him being raised with the new rising of the sun in the east. Um, like Christ was raised, raised. So this is profound identification of of uh, Christians mm-hmm. with Christ as mm-hmm. they're being persecuted, as they're mm-hmm. being martyred. Um, and that's a that's a really important piece of how Christians, I think, would have conceptualized their relationship with Jesus. Mm-hmm. That we are we're participating with Him in the mission that God sent Him to achieve. Mm-hmm. Uh, you think about Mark, Mark's gospel, when Jesus first calls His disciples. And he appointed he appointed twelve of them. This is chapter three, I think that that they may be with him, and that he may send them out to preach. So the first reason for him calling them is that they would be with him. There's the kind of personal relationship. Mm-hmm. But that they mm-hmm. sent out a priest. They're they're actually partners with him in the proclamation that the kingdom of God has come uh, among us. Mm-hmm. Uh, you get a similar thing in in John's gospel where Jesus invites the branches to abide in me like a vine. Mm-hmm. Um, but abide in me and then you will go and bear fruit. Right. So our being embedded in Jesus um, has implications for our participation in the mission of God. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's one, one part of it um, that maybe is a helpful corrective to the ways we conceptualize mm-hmm. of like when we think of personal relationship with Jesus, mm-hmm. the accent is on personal yeah, right? Right. Yeah. in our, in our yeah. culture. And even the term relationship is unhelpfully tinged by your know, connotations of emotion and experience mm-hmm. or even sexual relationship, that sort of thing. Um, but early Christians would have thought of their lives being folded into uh, the life of God, mm-hmm. um, which includes their participation in the movement of God towards the world that you see in Jesus. Mm-hmm. Um, when you're baptized in Jesus' name, you're praying in Jesus' name, um, you are being enfolded into Christ. This is Paul's favorite description of a Christian is not someone who has a personal relationship with Jesus or even someone who has Jesus in their heart, which is how we often think about it or mm-hmm. talk about it. But his favorite, favorite designation is that you are in Christ mm-hmm. uh, more than any other kind of expression. So you are in Christ, your whole self, your identity is embedded within Jesus. And who do you find beside you? In Christ, well, all the other ones who are in Christ. Everyone else is in Christ. (laughs) There's there's the body of Christ metaphor that Paul uses uh, a lot, right? Christ is the head, and we are His body. We're all connected to each other because we're all Mm -hmm. in Christ. So there's a there's a communal identity that comes with my relationship to Jesus. My being embedded in Christ is inextricably bound up with my being connected to you. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, so this it's it's not very individualistic in that sense. It's not that there isn't an individual part of it. God knows your name. Uh, this beautiful passage in 
in, in John's gospel, right? Where the, my sheep hear my voice. I call them by name. Mm-hmm. They come to me and Mary at the resurrection in John 20, here's Jesus say Mary. And that's the moment when she gets, when she mm-hmm. realizes, oh, it's the risen Lord. Mm-hmm. So there, there is a personal part to, to the gospel, but it's not just that. You can't just flatten it to that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not, not individual. Yeah. And, and, and it's, we're being unfolded into something that's bigger than us. Yeah. Uh, the, the life of the triune God, uh, the relationship father has with son that is, cemented by the spirit who is the voice crying out from within us this is romans 8 abba father um and and there's and there's the presence of the lord uh that's that's the other way in which christians may have thought of relationship with jesus is um not that it's not relationship but maybe a bit more accent on his presence Mm -hmm. with us in in the eucharist Mm -hmm. Uh, when we're baptized when two or three are gathered in my name there i am with you Mm -hmm. that's not quite you know, the accent isn't quite on experience or emotion, but mm-hmm. there is presence as a, yeah. as a key part mm-hmm. there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Josh, we could, um, we could keep going, but we can't, but you are going to keep going talking about these things in other formats. Do you want to tell us a little bit just briefly about your, the, the class that you're, the distance ed class that you're teaching in the fall? Just, it's about Christology. Yeah, well, I uh, suppose you've talked about a lot of the things that we'll unpack in more detail mm. in that course. Uh, so it's a course called The Origins of Christology. Um, I, it's, a, it's a beautiful, wonderful subject to, to get embedded in um, mm. for all sorts of reasons. And I guess this, our conversation here has been a bit of preview yeah. the kinds of yeah. things mm-hmm. we'll, we'll talk about there. Yeah. Um, so I'm really looking forward to it. And yeah. the chance to talk about Jesus at length with anybody is always a gift. Mm. <laughs> totally. Well, so looking forward to having you to, to do that with us, Josh. And thanks yeah. so much. Thanks for your time. Thanks for being mm-hmm. with us and for whetting our appetite for all of those things. Thank you both, Claire. And- <laughs> thanks for listening to the Regent College podcast. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. To discover more about Regent College, its upcoming events, conferences, courses, and more content like this, visit rgnt.net. That is rgnt.net.